This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. Joining me tonight is Helena. Helena is a streamer and also has a channel here on YouTube under the name No Justice MTG. That's linked in the description below. Helen, this is your first time as a guest on Navarra Media. We have actually featured you sure before, um, and that was in a clip react when you had called into LBC to speak to Rachel Reeves. Tell us what happened then. Well, essentially, I'm kind of, as I'm sure many people on the left are, very tired of plenty of people, especially on the Labour front bench, not being quizzed properly on the fact that they have retreated from previously held positions towards this centrist line, which has no kind of democratic mandate within the Labour Party at all, really and truly. And so, given that, I thought, well, if the journalists aren't going to hold these people to account, then I'm going to have to hold them to account. And I'm not going to hold them to account by making YouTube videos all the time. We're going to have to speak to them directly. And given that we are in the lucky position in this country where we do have members of the Shadow Cabinet and the Prime Minister, for example, being on places like LBC to be quizzed directly, I thought, how better? To, what better way of doing it than by confronting them myself? And it was a really excellent clip. We did show it. So it was, you put to Rachel Reeves a, a statement by a prominent economist sort of saying we have to tax the rich, asked Rachel Reeves what she thought of it, and then only afterwards told her that it was her who had said it. And of course, now the Shadow Chancellor not um, committing to taxing the rich. Um, coming up tonight, we are talking about the Tories selling out renters again. The renters reform bill has been put on ice again. Um, we are also going to be talking about Rubiales. Um, so the former head of the Spanish FA getting a restraining order put on him. I don't know if you, you, you literally couldn't be in a more embarrassing, shameful situation than this guy, but he seems to be willing to keep on digging. Let's go straight on to that first story. The American XL bully dog breed is set to be banned. The move was announced in this video from Rishi Sunak this morning. The American XL bully dog is a danger to our communities, particularly our children. I share the nation's horror at the recent videos we've all seen. Yesterday, we saw another suspected XL bully dog attack, which has tragically led to a fatality. It's clear this is not about a handful of badly trained dogs. It's a pattern of behavior and it cannot go on. While owners already have a responsibility to keep their dogs under control, I want to reassure people that we are urgently working on ways to stop these attacks and protect the public. Today, I have tasked ministers to bring together police and experts to firstly define the breed of dog behind these attacks with a view to then outlawing it. It is not currently a breed defined in law, so this vital first step must happen fast. We will then ban the breed under the Dangerous Dogs Act and new laws will be in place by the end of the year. These dogs are dangerous. I want to reassure the public that we will take all necessary steps to keep people safe. As you heard Sunak point to there, this announcement came after news of more horrific attacks by dogs suspected to be XL bullies. In Stonnell, near Walsall, a man has died after being mauled by two XL bullies. 52-year-old Ian Price was attacked by the dogs while defending his elderly mother. Children in a nearby school were locked inside until the danger passed. The 30-year-old owner of the dogs has been arrested. On Monday, a four-year-old boy was hospitalised after an attack by an XL bully in East London. The boy had been playing in the park with his older brother. Now, as for why there are quite so many aggressive XL bullies around, the Telegraph has an investigation on their rather specific gene pool. Um, so you can see here, half of all XL bully dogs in Britain descend from Killer Kimbo. This is Killer Kimbo. You can see he's a pretty big, strong American bully. 
about this investigation, the Telegraph write, researchers have now identified one dog from Los Angeles that may be responsible for dozens of violent incidents. Publicly available pedigrees of British stud dogs used for breeding show that half of pets on the market are descended from the dog UKC's most wanted Kimbo, known by breeders as Killer Kimbo. Kimbo's size and strength, produced through generations of inbred fighting dogs, has given it legendary status in the XL bully community. Gustavo Castro, the dog's breeder, grew up and lives in the Huntington Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. His Facebook page shows pictures of him lifting the dog and it sitting on his sofa. Kimbo was the product of two dogs from the same parents and is thought to have bred hundreds of XL bully puppies passing on an extremely narrow gene pool that experts have warned can make dogs unstable and cause genetic diseases. Researchers from Bully Watch, a campaign group, say that dogs related to Killer Kimbo are responsible for at least 10 violent incidents worldwide with dozens more impossible to trace. I'll start by saying my thoughts on this. As I say, if you watch Monday's show, you'll know that I have reasonably um, strong feelings and that's because I'm a co-owner of a dog which is a crossbreed of a staffy, something else we think, um, and then an American bully. Now, it's unclear to me what counts as a as an XL bully. You do see sort of online these ads where they've sort of interbreeded these incredibly strong dogs to make sort of dogs that look literally like wrestlers. Um, my dog isn't quite like that, but I'm not sure how, you know, you heard Rishi Sunak say there, they're going to be talking to scientists now to decide how it will be determined, what counts as an American bully, and then what falls within the band. So, you know, given my dog has never expressed any aggression towards people, I'm hoping um, she won't be included in that ban. Um, but I think, you know, it's obvious the statistics show, or it's obvious to me, I think, that the statistics show that American bullies do seem to be more dangerous than other dogs. There does seem to be something going on. And, you know, I, I think it's fairly understandable that the public want you know, some protection from these dogs, right? I think it's probably a mistake um, that we allowed them to proliferate in this country in the first place. I think the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, brilliant dog. Um, I think it's just over the last sort of four years or so that they've kind of been um, replaced by American bullies, which, as I say, they're a much younger breed I think they've only been around since 1980. Staffies have been around for a couple of hundred years. And that's why I think they, they, they seem to be more chaotic dogs. And when you, provide, when you combine reactivity with the strength they have, you have some problems. Now, my worry, I suppose, for, for the dog I co-own, um, and I suppose for, for American bullies throughout the country, right, is, is it seems that what's going to happen for existing dogs is you will be able to, to keep them. They'll have to be neutered. I agree with the breeding ban, absolutely. They'll have to be neutered, but also they will have to be on a lead and with a muzzle for life. Now, my concern there, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't actually know how I feel about this because I, I can see why people would want them to be on leads and muzzles for life, given some of the attacks we've seen. But the concern for me is that, especially younger dogs, right, they need a lot of exercise. So my dog likes to run around, right? She likes to run around in the park with other big dogs. And we normally try and take her to sort of the bigger places um, whereby you're less likely to see those smaller dogs. Um, and there's less likely to be sort of kids around. I mean, I, I'm completely comfortable with her around kids, but I know the parents might not be. So, you know, out of respect, um, you try and take them to somewhere where there's more open space. Now, if she wasn't allowed to run around ever and meet other dogs and play with other dogs, she's going to get a lot of pent-up energy. And she's all right. You know, she's never expressed any aggression towards humans. But if you've got a dog that's got loads of pent-up energy and potentially has some inclination to be aggressive to people, then you're going to have a lot of dogs which are potentially angrier than they already are in people's family homes. And I think it could all be a bit messy. I don't know if the, the state should provide certain fields where you can go take your dog to that it can run around without bothering anyone else. I, I would back something like that, considering they have allowed 
tens of thousands of people potentially to buy these dogs, which they're now going to say have to be on a leash and a muzzle for for life, which, you know, some people have said to me on Twitter, that's completely fine. They've got a dog that's on a leash and a muzzle for his whole life. I mean, I think maybe with older dogs, as I say, older dogs, maybe that works. I, I just think with a dog that's sort of one, two, three, it's going to really struggle to expend enough energy. It, it, obviously, on a leash, you can never run faster than your owner. Dogs run a lot faster than people. Oh. Um, Helena, obviously, I've got some personal investment in this story. I mean, what do you make of this? Where do you fall on this debate? Well, I don't really have much of my own personal opinions on these, as I don't have any particular skin in the game. But what I will say is I think that it's very politically difficult not to instigate a ban at this point. Once children start getting attacked, it's very optically bad for the government not to come down hard on this. And despite the, due to what vets groups and animal rights groups have said, and they've confirmed that they do not think that whole breed bans are in any way helpful, it is the current legislative framework that we have, given the Dangerous Dogs Act and what the kind of breeds that it has banned already, one of which is where the the XL bully is genetically derived from, the American Pitbull Terrier. So given that, I think this is basically where the government has been cornered into on this one. When you look at it, right, in, in the decade, 81 to 91, before the Dangerous Dogs Act, there were 15 dog attack fatalities. And that was what led to uh, the four attacks in 1991 that led to the act being put into place in the first place. Since 2002, there have been 16 dog attack fatalities, or more in the decade before the Dangerous Dogs Act, the majority of which have been, for, or the large portion rather, have been from uh, American Bully XLs or mixes. Right. So given the, math, the large increase upon the current precedent that we have, I think it's very, very difficult for the government to do anything else at this point, given both the optics and the current precedents. I kind of agree with that. I was, I was talking to, you know, I say I'm a co-owner of this dog. I was talking to the other owner of this dog and they were saying what they find very frustrating is how unregulated breeding is in this country. And because breeding, the only regulated body seems to be the Kennel Club. Now, the Kennel Club is this organization whereby, you know, they're constantly, they're obsessed with the genetic lines of dogs. So they, they sort of will give your dog a gold star if it's a pedigree Labrador or whatever. And I think that's the precise opposite way that we should be regulating this, right? Because it doesn't matter if a dog is a pure Frenchie or a pure Labrador. What matters is that it's friendly and safe, right? So we should be regulating breeders to say, are you raising healthy, friendly dogs, not are you raising pure breed dogs? So I think there definitely will be some role for sort of regulating breeders in the future. Because obviously the, the reason the American bully came about is because you had breeders who were, um, well, depending on what particular story you follow, breeders trying to breed stronger and stronger dogs. Now, I think if it was regulated, you'd probably have a regulator saying, oh, that's, that's not actually the way we should do this. The way we should do this is we should be breeding friendly, safe dogs, um, which doesn't seem to have been what has happened here. Let's go on to our next story. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this more, especially as those details come out in terms of how an XL bully is defined. When Michael Gove became Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities, he had two promises for renters. First, that he would deliver planning reform to get more houses built, therefore bringing down rents and house prices. And second, that he would increase renters' rights so that we could no longer be arbitrarily evicted by our landlords. Now, it wasn't a particularly ambitious agenda. Gove was, after all, not planning to build hundreds of thousands of council homes, which is what would actually solve our housing crisis but it would have been a step in the right direction. And that's why it's especially frustrating that neither of these very modest reforms are now set to happen. Now, we learned last November that planning reform was being shelved. That was due to opposition from backbench Tory NIMBYs. And today, we've learned that once again, 
the Renters' Reform Bill is being kicked into the long grass. The Financial Times has background on why the Renters' Reform Bill is being put on ice. They say some supporters of the bill claim that its crucial second reading in the House of Commons is being held up by vested interests in the government whip's office, where five of 16 whips own rental property. There are a number of landlords in the whip's office who are amplifying the level of concern among Tory MPs and holding things up, said one Whitehall official speaking on terms of anonymity. So planning reform was blocked by NIMBY backbenchers opposed to new homes, and rental reform is being blocked by landlords in the whip's office unwilling to give up their power over tenants. The FT also write this, MPs have never been given a chance to debate rental reform legislation. And on Thursday, Penny Morden, leader of the House of Commons, did not include the second reading in her announcement of parliamentary business for the remainder of the current parliamentary session. The next session begins on November the 7th. Gove is still hopeful the bill will have its crucial second reading before that date and that it could be carried over. But the current session is limping to its conclusion with a series of inconsequential general debates with ministers apparently unwilling to schedule legislation that might spark a Tory revolt. Translation, there would be plenty of time to debate the Renters' Reform Bill in this session of Parliament, but among the landlords on the Tory backbenches, there isn't the support for it, and so the government don't want to risk it, right? So it is vested interest on the Tory backbenches that mean that this is not going to get debated in this session. It might be debated from November onwards, but I mean, given that this has been put back and put back and put back since I think 2019 now, maybe a little bit earlier, I don't have much confidence that will happen again. Oh, it won't happen again, sorry. Um, let's go to a comment from the chief executive of Shelter. She's called Polly Neat. She said this, the government's failure to urgently progress the renters reform bill has abandoned millions of renters to broken private renting where their home can be ripped out from under them for no reason. We hear from countless renters who are sick with worry because they know that an unjust no-fault eviction notice could land on their doormat any moment, leaving them with just two months to find a new home. Helena, what do you make of this story? Well, where do we start with anything to do with the current housing market in this country? I mean, really and truly, I think that the Conservatives have put themselves in a rock and a hard place on this one, in that we've got on one side, there are vested interests in the Conservative Party who either themselves own property or who represent a lot of other people who also own property and are potentially landlords as well, want to ensuring that landlords who predominantly vote Conservative but are being soured on their current governance, given the mortgage crisis that we're seeing at the moment, they want to be able to keep these people on side and not lose their votes because you know, every single Conservative MP could theoretically have their seat be up for grabs at the next election. So any any kind of legislation that tips that balance is something they're very wary of. And they're going to push the whips really hard to ensure that these kind of bills don't go through, whether it's for their own interests, whether it's for their own voter base's interests, right? That's a really that's one end of the discussion. On the other hand, you have Michael Gove, who is desperately trying and failing to pull the Conservative Party into the 21st century. He understands, he's a shrewd political operator, Michael Gove. He understands that the Conservative Party have lost millennials, that they have no policies at all to deal with the fact that millennials are the first generation who are becoming more left-wing over time rather than more right-wing because, of course, they've not built up any housing wealth because they can't get on the housing market. And when they're not on the housing ladder, they're being absolutely shafted by a horrendous rental market, which again is the fault of four decades worth of policy failures from both governments of Conservative and Labour alike. So he is trying to trying to pull them in another direction by having some meagre, really, these are really meagre reforms for renters at the end of it, because on, on the back end of ending no-fault evictions, they're also going to be introducing more easy ways 
for landlords to be able to evict non-paying tenants as well. And when we're looking at the current housing crisis, when there's no additional supply happening, because that's all being blocked by Tory backbenchers as well, who want to protect their own um, constituency homeowner interests, we now have the possibility of the next two years, rents could rise to up to 20% yet again. And when that rental rise happens again, that's going to lead to people getting to non-payment and we're going to have a wave of evictions because it's been going to be easier through this, this renters reform bill to be able to evict these people as well. So the Conservative Party and, to be fair, the Labour Party have really screwed this country on failure to invest in new housing. As you say, council housing is the real solution to this, because if rents do start to rise, then you're going to there's going to be a very large political consensus towards rent caps, more so than there is already. And we know from you know, the economic study of rent caps that to be able to necessarily implement them, there has to be the state on the back end to be able to fulfil the lack of supply that's going to happen when you institute that rent cap. And that's not going to happen from either party now either. So uh, really and truly, I have no idea how this solution gets solved when both parties seem to be completely avoiding the necessary increase in supply, which is, as far as I can see, the only way of solving this crisis. I think this is one policy area where I do think Labour will be a lot better than the Tories. And the reason I say that is, is not so much because of a difference on their front bench, but a difference on their back benches. So as I say, these reforms from Michael Gove were, were nowhere near what we need. What we need is, is mass council building, mass council house building, sorry. So in the, in the 50s and, and 60s, you sometimes had the state building more than 200,000 council homes a year, right? Then you'd also get another 200,000 from the private sector. So this is the kind of numbers we need to solve the, 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 the housing crisis. I don't think either Labour or Tories are, are offering that. But Michael Gove was offering something which was a slight improvement on the present state of things, which was some planning reform to stop NIMBYs blocking any kind of development in their local area, and then more rights for renters. Now, Labour, I think their front bench would definitely back that, and then their back benches would also vote for it. Because the problem with the Tories is he can't pass anything that's remotely makes our, our planning system or our relationship between landlords and, and tenants more, more rational even. You know, it's, it's not particularly socialist what he's planning to do, not at all socialist actually, just a little bit more rational. But the people on his backbenches can't tolerate that. But I think if, you know, whoever takes on this job for the Labour Party, maybe Angela Rayner, she's got it now, um, if she was to try and put through moderate stuff like this, I think that would get through. Labour MPs would vote this through. So we would get some planning reform. We would get some more renters' rights. Will it solve the housing crisis? No. To solve the housing crisis, what we need to do is stump up billions in cash to build shed loads of council homes. I think also increase property taxes so that you have less people sitting on property they're not using. That's obviously very politically difficult. Those are the things I can't imagine um, the Labour Party doing, especially the, on, on property taxes. I mean, they've, they've, they've almost ruled it out already, haven't they? So um, a lot to be disappointed about, I think, when it comes to the Labour Party, but it will be better than this. I think, in a way, the, a Labour government will be a bit like what Michael Gove wants to do but without having the backbenchers stopping him doing it, at least on the issue of housing. Um, as for how desperately we need a rental reform bill, a report up on navaramedia.com this week gives a good idea. So you can see here, cramming 40 people into a four-bed house wasn't enough to get this rogue landlord added to the government database. Not one person has been added to the list this year. This is an article by Hajar Meda. And we can read from this piece. So in August, Jaidip Kumar Valand was handed Brent Council's first ever landlord banning order for packing dozens of people into a semi-detached house in Wembley, northwest London. The unsafe property was so overcrowded that Valand reportedly had one tenant living in a shack made of pallets 
in the garden with a tarpaulin roof and no lights or heating. Yet he's only been banned from renting for five short years and he hasn't even been added to the rogue landlord database. We can take a look at the shack in the garden. So you can see that there. And this is only enough to get you a five-year ban in Brent. And then the dodgy landlord wasn't even added to the government database. So presumably it'd be somewhat easy for him to try and be a landlord in a different borough. Um, Valland isn't the only landlord getting off lightly either. So Hajar Medas, the, the author of the article, spoke to Ben Reeve Lewis. He's co-founder of Safer Renting. And get this, right? This is uh, the part of the article that really made my jaw drop to the floor. In a recent case, Reeve Lewis told Navarra Media that the letting agent pulled a gun on a woman and her children during an illegal eviction. Following two and a half years of work to get the agent into court, he received a paltry fine of 400 quid. Helena, I mean, here you're seeing, I think the two, I mean, the, the two sides of the housing crisis, which make it quite so toxic, which is you have this real impunity on the part of, of landlords, but then also, you know, tenants have absolutely no leverage because there aren't enough houses. Now, because I, I, I absolutely, a landlord trying to fit 40 people in a terraced house should get struck off. At the same time, why are there 40 people trying to live in one terraced house? Because there aren't enough houses that are available at affordable prices. So, you know, in, in a way, yes, put those regulations on landlords, but unless you also sort out the supply, you know, would you prefer to be crammed in a house with 40 other people or homeless on the street? In a way, that's the choice that's being given to these people, right? Well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, quite frankly, I think landlords are out of control in this country. And it's because they know they have a captive audience. You can't just be homeless. I mean, you can, but obviously that's not the, the position that you'd want to be in. And so give, given the fact that not only are they have a captive audience because of lack of supply, landlords are leaving the sector due to interest rate rises and also worry about the potential impact of the renters reform bill, which is pushing supply for renters even lower and allowing landlords to get away with the kind of things that we have been seeing, given the article that you've just quoted there. Uh, I think, I mean, you say tenants have no leverage. I mean, the only leverage that you can really have is to join a tenants union. I think that is uh, in the absence of any actual state help, which is clearly not happening given the vested interests in the current legislature. I think the only real recourse that tenants have is to join a tenants union, like ACORN, for example. I think that really is the only the only recourse that tenants will have at this point against people who know that their economic nature, because of, again, all of this catastrophic failure on policy, which is essentially born out of the need to continue to pander to the, the homeowning class that got created by right to buy, um, who have essentially dictated policy on housing in this country uh, for the last 40 years at this point. I mean, there's a fun fact, uh, give it, going back to the council housing point, there's a fun fact I'll find in 10 years of Tony Blair's government, they built fewer council houses in total than was built in three years of Boris Johnson being prime minister. That's how much this has become. Essentially, the only way that you can win elections in this country is by pandering to the fact that the need of people who have been had market, housing been so over-marketized to this point. I mean, another interesting fact as well is it was only in 2011 that private rentals outstripped council rentals in this country, or social rentals in this country, rather. So they know full well, landlords do, that they have a completely captive audience and tenants have literally nowhere else to go. We talk about this a lot, but I think this is another one of those problems where our electoral system really doesn't help. Because if you had uh, proportional representation, renters are a big proportion of, 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 of the public, and especially private renters are a growing proportion of the public, right? So they would be a, a key voting block. But the problem is, in most constituencies, they are a minority, and um, especially in those swing constituencies, they are a minority. So if we look at the two parties really competing very, very heavily over some red wall seats, 
that tends to be people who might have had working class jobs in the past, or might still do, might still have manual jobs, but obviously there are less manual jobs around now, but now are older and own their own homes. So these are going to be people who are very, very interested in the, the value of their house, maintaining its value. Maybe it's involved in sort of their, their, their planning for, for their retirement, right? And so obviously we should protect these people in their retirement. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but that means that both parties end up prioritizing the interests of homeowners over renters. And I think what we really need is someone to get into government and say, what really matters here is not the people who currently own their homes, but it's people who want to own their homes and can't. And it's people who are renting and, 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 and really can't afford to pay the rent they're paying in the insecure contracts which they're in. And what that requires is a government to say, we're going to build shed loads of houses. But first past the post means you've got all these MPs who are saying, well, I'm in favor of houses, but not really in my constituency. And then you've got both of these parties who are saying, um, well, in those particularly swing constituencies in the country that we're desperate to win over and um, the majority of people or the people who are most likely to vote as well because homeowners are more likely to vote they are the people who we need to pay most attention to and renters get left out in the cold i mean because obviously it's not new as you say helena this is not new this has been uh, a group in society that have been ignored for 40 years ever since margaret thatcher and again this is obviously everyone everyone always says this but it's it's worth repeating the genius of margaret thatcher's leadership was to create a homeowning class which was much when she entered into power so what she did is she tried to say oh people in council homes tend to vote labor so what will i do i'll sell off the council homes so then you will have the sort of top slice of the working class becoming homeowners and then they will be natural tory voters instead of natural labor voters what that meant is that uh, the key voters instead of being potentially people in social housing or, or private renters are now homeowners and then it's a sort of system whereby it just sort of concentrates itself you call it a positive feedback loop so you sort of create more homeowners and that makes policy which is in favor of homeowners and it sort of goes round and round and round and if you're left outside you're screwed and we are screwed if we don't own homes at the moment which more and more people do not let's go to our next story this is susan hall she's the conservative candidate for london mayor and she's never been shy about letting people know just how much she detests Sadiq Khan. But now it's been revealed that she also liked a series of aggressive and even racist tweets concerning London's mayor. The Times reports this. In one post liked by Hall, Khan, the London mayor, is described as our nipple height mayor of Londonistan. Now, the term Londonistan is a sobriquet anti racist campaigners say is often used pejoratively. I'm not sure what a sobriquet is, but I think you can see that Londonistan is going to be used in a racist way. And um, the full tweet reads this. Please be upstanding for Councillor Susie, reminding our nipple-height mayor of Londonistan to stop trying to overturn Brexit and start doing his job. Well done, Susie. Kiss. So she liked that tweet. In another tweet praising her questioning of the London mayor's violence against women and girls strategy, Hall liked a comment which said, well said, Susan, that Labour traitor rat likes that sort of thing. Hall also liked to tweet, including the claim that Khan is begging for Londoners to do a Tower Hamlets postal vote for May next year, and we all know how that works. Hashtag fraud, appearing to suggest that he would endorse electoral corruption. It doesn't stop there, though. The Times article goes on to say this. Susan Hall liked an image of Enoch Powell, infamous for his Rivers of Blood speech on Twitter, alongside the image of the words, it's never too late to save your country, a combination once used on the website of the far right, British National Party. Now, in response to the Times report, Susan Hall's spokesperson said this, Susan engages with many people on Twitter without endorsing their views. 
Londoners want a mayor who listens to people and deals with the bread and butter issues that matter to them, making our streets safer and putting more money back into people's pockets as Mayor Susan will deliver that. This is really worrying, I think, right? You know, the spokesperson saying, oh, she likes it. That doesn't mean she endorses it. What she is clearly doing, though, is reading something which is explicitly racist. This is a politician in public life standing to be London mayor and saying, yep, yeah, I'm fine with that. Cool. Fab. Great. Yeah. Sadiq Khan, mayor of Londonistan. Like Enoch Powell, we need to save our country you know, from non-white people, presumably. Like this is someone who is either an outright racist or someone who has absolutely zero understanding of racism who wants to stand to be elected in London, an incredibly multicultural, diverse city. Obviously, as well, if you remember a recent show, what we discussed is that first past the post doesn't mean that Susan or first past the post makes it the case that it's not a completely outlandish idea that Susan Hall could win the mayoralty if the left vote is split. Um, she could get in on, on, on 30% or the like, and that would be, I think, incredibly toxic for this city. Um, Helena, when I first looked at this story, so sometimes when I see headlines sort of suggesting that someone has liked this tweet or liked that tweet, I kind of think, oh God, another story about someone liking tweets. But this does seem like a pattern whereby this person is really willing to endorse incredibly racist views about her rival. Yeah, I mean, I was going to make a point on this one. Is the I think on the left we mostly get into politics because we figure we will we'll prioritize economic policy, and we and we think we make the assumption that people on the right do too. And I think that's not really the case. A lot of people who are really into conservatism, members of the intelligentsia, or members of the party itself, are very very conservative on social issues, and I don't think we give that enough credence. This is what led to the kind of things like the National Conservatism Conference, where it looked like Crankfest 2023. But this is really kind of the meat and potatoes of the actual conservative member base, which is how you get people like Susan Hall standing in, in the position uh, that, that she's in. And I think she, she is in tune in similar respects with the kind of things that she's appeared to endorse by liking these tweets. Um, I don't really think there's any much defence that you can pull for liking multiple things along this very, very similar pattern that shows an endorsement of at least moderately racist views, if not, you know, liking a picture of and uh, a quote from one of the most famous kind of figures of racial animus in this country in the form of Enoch Powell. It seems like an incredibly strange defense of hers to say that she likes it, but she doesn't endorse it. I also do want to focus on Sadiq Khan a bit more because it is, I think, really worth noting and actually dwelling on the extent to which Sadiq Khan has been a focal point or become a focal point for racist hate. Now, since being elected London Mayor in 2016, he's received over 300,000 pieces of racist or racism-oriented abuse via social media. But in recent months, it's been on the rise. A study by the Greater London Authority found that racist abuse targeting the mayor has nearly doubled since he decided to expand the ultra-low emission zone to Greater London. The Guardian reported this in July. In 2023 so far, the study found nearly 11,000 racist social media messages, almost as many as sent in all of 2022, with a particular rise in ones referencing Khan's plan to expand London's ultra-low emission zone. The trawl of social media found that racist or racialized abuse mentioning ULES rose nearly 200% in the first three months of 2023 against the previous quarter, with almost 10% of such messages now referencing it. So what's the character of the abuse? Well, it's very much the kind of thing 
that Susan Hall has been liking. And The Guardian goes on to report this. The bulk of the racist or racialized abuse is aimed at Khan's Pakistani Muslim heritage, with the content isolated by searching for messages linking the mayor to terms such as Sharia law, jihad, or keywords like Londonistan. The report also included messages with the term carnage, saying that while it is not in itself explicitly racist, it is often used in racist posts. At the time of that report, George Lamming of Hope Not Hate told The Guardian this, Sadiq Khan is subjected to strikingly high levels of racial abuse, which speaks to the vilification of Muslim figures in public life. Whilst opposition to ULEZ comes from many sources, a small but vocal contingent has adopted a toxic and increasingly extreme anti-Khan angle. The involvement of individuals linked to the conspiracy theory-driven protests that emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic and elements of the far right in anti-ULEZ campaigning has fueled the levels of abuse. I do really think it is worth sort of noting how much ire is directed at Sadiq Khan because he's a pretty milk toast politician, right? You know, I'm, I, I don't mind Sadiq Khan, but I don't find him in any way inspiring. He, he, he does seem to be someone who, who plays it quite safe, right? Quite a PR-focused politician. He seems to be quite keen on, you know, keeping different people on side. And I do think it is, I mean, I suppose he did, you know, he, he, he talks a lot about Brexit and stuff, but I do think the ire sort of focused on him does obviously have so much to do with him being a Muslim mayor of London. I think he's the most he's the the, the Muslim mayor in, in Europe who's sort of mayor of the biggest city, right? So he's, he's got a significant role, both in this country and sort of on the global stage. And he is a massive target because of that. And Sadiq Khan is a liberal guy, right? You know, he's incredibly pro-LGBT, and yet you're still constantly seeing him being like, oh, Sadiq Khan, he, he wants to bring Sharia law into London. And I think what this shows is that it's not, you know, if, if you are Muslim and of a Muslim background, However liberal you are, you are still going to have right-wing people saying you want to introduce Sharia law. And the other thing to remember here is this is not just a minority of sort of crazy people on the internet. Because do you remember the election when Sadiq Khan first got elected? Who was standing against him? Zach Goldsmith. That was the most Islamophobic campaign I think I've seen in my lifetime in this country, right? Do you remember that, that article? I think it was in the mail where you had um, a picture of one of the 7-7 seven, seven bombings saying Sadiq Khan will make London less safe. So, so outrageously racist. He ended up getting brought back in as an environment minister, didn't he? It's quite easy to, to, to come back from running racist campaigns in this country. Let's move on. This is former Sky News boss John Riley. He left the organization on the day of King Charles's coronation. And was that date just a coincidence? Well, Riley's now given a lecture to the Royal Television Society, and in it, he's deeply critical of the approach of British broadcasters to the royal family. He's called broadcasters supine, incurious, and compliant when reporting on the monarchy. He demanded that journalists, quote, start reporting on the royal family with the same rigor as they treat every story on the news agenda, unquote. And he didn't spare his old channel Sky News from criticism either. In 2017, Sky interviewed Charles, but gave him a full list of questions in advance. About that incident, Riley said this, if a viewer had interrogated us about whether that was entirely in keeping with our core values of being honest with our audiences, it would have been hard to mount a robust defense. Imagine submitting a list of questions to a top politician or business leader, maybe in a puppet state. That's phenomenal. I didn't actually know that, that they'd handed Prince Charles his questions in advance. Phenomenal. Now imagine if Emily Maitlis had done that to Prince Andrew. I'm describing media coverage of the coronation. Riley revealed a Buckingham Palace directive marked private and confidential in its contents. He said this, for example, on the TV, no pictures of the new king or queen could be replayed until they had left Westminster Abbey 
and the royal spin doctors had the opportunity to censor any pictures from the coronation before they could be replayed on the day. On social media, no clips of the coronation could be shown while the event was taking place. Really? Thus, in one go, Buckingham Palace denied a whole generation of TikTok users and others from seeing the spectacle. And the royal spin doctors dictated which clips of the footage could be shown in future broadcasts in what they called, with an Orwellian phrase, a perpetuity edit. Now, you won't be surprised that similar controls were exerted over the coverage of the Queen's funeral last year. So you literally have the royal family, which is, you know, it's a political body, telling the TV stations how they want their events to be covered. You can use this clip, you can't use that clip. And what it seems like, all these television companies just said, fine, yeah, we'll go along with that. You know, you're the royals. <laughs> That's what we do. Riley had another story, this time about self-censorship from the British media when it comes to the royals. In January last year, the Queen stripped Prince Andrew of his military titles over his association with Jeffrey Epstein's child trafficking ring. Prince Charles was in Aberdeen, where a media pool, that's a collection of journalists who agreed to share video with other broadcasters, was taking place. Now, the Press Gazette reports what happened next. Riley said Sky phoned two other broadcasters in the pool and said, quote, We'd like you to ask a question for Prince Charles about what his reaction was with his brother being stripped of all these royal titles. But they both said, he claimed, um, we don't really want to do that. That's a bit awkward. Riley recalled that James Matthews, now Sky News US correspondent, said, right, Sky will go and do that pull. And he doorstepped Prince Charles. Now, here's what happened when Matthews asked Charles that question. Your Royal Highness, can I ask you a view on your can I, brother's position, can Prince Andrew? Can we just introduce you, please? How do you view it? I may present as well. Very nice to see you again. Riley went on to describe the fallout. Within a couple of hours, I had an email in my inbox. How dare your correspondent do that? And then I got phoned. And then I was summoned to a meeting, which I didn't go to. They're on the case. They want the story told in their way. And they don't really want to engage with journalistic rigor. Riley also described Palace Spin Doctors as, quote, freaking out whenever a journalist tries to doorstep a royal. On what Riley wants instead, he said, this, topics such as why King Charles didn't pay any inheritance tax on the fortune he inherited from his mother, or the fact the Duchy of Cornwall doesn't pay capital gains tax should be examined properly. The reporting needs to be far more rigorous. Greater openness is not about stripping the monarchy of its dignity or disturbing their personal privacy. It's all about promoting a culture of openness that gives the public a truthful view of their monarchy. Remember, in truth, there is trust, respect, and unity. Now, Riley is absolutely right. You never see those topics tackled by mainstream broadcast media. It wasn't the case that when Charles was about to be crowned, there was all this discussion, well, isn't this a good time to talk about his tax affairs? No, everyone was like, no, now is not the time. Now is just the time to talk about whatever the royal family want you to talk about. Luckily, though, there's a place where you can watch the kind of journalism Riley is calling for. On the day of King Charles's first Christmas speech last year, we put out this video title, Here's Why Britain Should Ditch King Charles. As you can see, it did rather well. So there clearly is a demand for this kind of journalism. If you want to find out about Charles's dodgy dealings and tax arrangements, the link to that video is in the description below. I find lots of this quite remarkable, the extent to which the broadcast media did just completely bow down to any demand, however unreasonable, from the royal family. I'm not surprised in the slightest. I think it is basically an open secret, really, at this point, that the news's coverage of the royals is not about public interest. It's about public spectacle. 
right? It's about the monetary gain that they have for continuing to have an audience of people who care deeply about the royals. I don't know if anyone's looked at the GB News YouTube channel recently, but you'll see that they have loads of coverage of the royals every day incessantly. And this is the case across loads of different news networks, because they know this is something that people are vastly interested in, not just in the UK, but globally as well. They have a vested interest, both they and the royals do, in ensuring that there is a continual good showing as far as the monarchy is concerned to keep people interested and keep people involved in this kind of grandiose part of British society that they have such a high interest in and there is always money to be made in reporting on it. So anything that could get in the way of that kind of cosy arrangement, as far as I can see, uh, would be something that I don't think that they have any kind of interest or any kind of needs to report on. Why do you think the press was so um, less than um, they, were, they were less than appreciative of the kind of stuff that Harry and Meghan have been doing because they've clearly not got the memo uh, on the what the relationship between the press and the royals should be. Let's move on. This was the moment that tarred the Spanish women's football team winning the World Cup. You saw there Spanish Football Federation President Luis Rubiales kissing Jenny Hermoso, the captain of the Spanish women's team. Hermoso said it was non-consensual and it rightly launched an international debate on sexism. For a number of weeks, Rubiales defied calls from across the sporting world to quit. But earlier this week, he conceded to the inevitable in an exclusive interview with Piers Morgan. You've come under ferocious pressure for three weeks now on you, on your family, it's been very difficult for your daughters, they're young girls. I can only imagine as a father myself, I have a daughter who's around the age of one of your girls. Incredibly difficult. There comes a point, perhaps, when the pressure is just so relent relentless that you do think about what you should do with yourself and your future. Many people think you should resign as president. What are you going to do? I love so much my daughters. Um and they, they love me so, so much. I'm very happy and I'm very proud of them. Very, very proud of them. They are very near to me. About my resignation, yes, I'm going to do. I'm go You're going to resign? Yeah, I'm going to. Yes, because I cannot continue my work. What was the final moment for you? Was it talking to your family, your dad perhaps? Uh, yeah, my, my, my father, uh, my daughters, I spoke with, with them. Um, it's not, they know it's, it's not a question about me and some friends very, very close to me. Uh, and they say to me, Luis, now you have to focus in your dignity and to continue your life. Because uh, if not, probably you are going to damage people you love and the sport you love and the beat you built with. Uh, some people long time ago, now it's very, very near the resolution next September in one year. Then when someone is not thinking only about himself, because I had to support a lot these uh, three weeks, but it's uh, more a question of not only me. And then an attitude of, an attitude of me can affect third parties very important and this is the, in this situation now, uh, the more intelligent and the thing I had to do. Real softball interview, like a, a guy who's completely disgraced himself, which is, like, oh, let's, let's have a nice chat. And Rubiales may have quit as the president of the Spanish Football Federation, but that resignation didn't come with an apology to Jenny Hermoso. 
And the Spanish team have made clear they will continue their boycott of national games. In total, 37 players are refusing to be called up for the Spanish women's team. Jenny Hermoso is also pursuing a court case against Rubiales, with Spanish prosecutors charging him with sexual assault and coercion. The second charge is because Hermoso says Rubiales pressured her to come to his defense in the days after the kiss. So basically said, can you please come out and say it was consensual when she was saying it was not consensual, completely disgraceful behavior. That's now resulted in a court placing a restraining order on the former football president, banning him from going within 200 meters of Hermoso. Rubiales is also not allowed to contact Hermoso while the court's investigation into the case continues. Appearing in court, Rubiales denied he had sexually assaulted Hermoso, but Hermoso's lawyers insisted that the kiss was non-consensual. Speaking outside of court, Hermoso's lawyer said this... We can say precisely that thanks to these images and thanks to social change and changes in the law, we can show that Mr. Rubiales had a complete lack of consent. The change to the law mentioned there is a reference to a recent piece of Spanish legislation under the so-called only yes means yes law. A non-consensual kiss can now be considered sexual assault by Spanish courts. If the case goes to trial and Rubiales is found guilty, he could face a fine or even jail. The initial kiss was disgraceful, but I mean, the way this guy has behaved afterwards, I mean, talk about you know, being in a hole and, and and continuing to keep on digging. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's clearly uh, behaved appallingly, uh, both before and both during and after, rather, and show, has shown no signs of contrition at all, despite the fact that it does seem to be, in general, um, a kind of consensus in most places that what happened was wrong. The fact that he won't even admit fault, right? he won't even admit any fault in this one, is something that I find, quite frankly, ridiculous, to, to the point at which he's having these softball interviews with Piers Morgan trying to defend himself, um, reminiscent of Piers Morgan being softball with Trump all those years ago. I, I really, I, I honestly, I'm completely dismayed at the line that he's taken on this, so much so, to the point at which it seems almost uh, to the point of parody, where he has to have, have a restraining order against him because of his his insistence that Hermosa should come to his defence somehow, given that she has already publicly said that it was non-consensual and he still insists. I find it quite remarkable, really and truly. Thank you everyone for watching this evening. We'll be back next Monday at 6pm. Have a fantastic weekend. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.